Let's get started, and uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll take a look now at Psalm 121. Father, we, we come from a variety of places, and, and our weeks have been different. So there's a lot of diversity here. There are, there are a lot of things that have happened. Some have been very good. Some have been somewhat neutral, kind of a, a typical week. Some have been difficult. And Father, as we try to set that aside for a minute, would you... Uh, help us to take a look at your word and, and learn from it. Would the Spirit of God teach us? Might there be things that we learn that would be helpful as we leave church and go out into that world again and, and begin to do the things that you have called us to do? And I just ask that you would uh, take whatever I say and, and make sure that it's biblical, it's under the authority of the scriptures, that it's helpful. And Father, I pray that you could use it in my life as well. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder, we're, a, we're the first three Psalms of Ascent, we did 120 last week. 120, 121, 122. Most people who see them as a triad, a group of three, a, a kind of mini pilgrimage, if you want to think of it that way. So 120 is, I'm in big trouble because I'm being squeezed by the world. I need to get back to recentering my values in God and in Jerusalem, the city of God. And 121 is the travel. It's sometimes called the traveler's song. So what is it like to travel? If you were in the ancient world, what was it like to travel from wherever you were to Jerusalem for these three festivals? They were required to go. Initially the men, but over time all families went and, and the children came with them, which made the travel even more difficult, even, even harder. And then 122, when we get to there, will be the arrival in the city. They actually are, are on the threshold of the city. And, and the, the, the joy that, that just springs off the page at you when you read Psalm 122 is just, uh, you can feel it in, 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 your, in your soul. That they've gotten to the place where God resides for them. Resides, not really. They knew he wasn't there. But it was the temple that was there. And finally, they had gotten to a place where they could be with others, and this ties right into to what Dan spoke about this morning, if you were there, they could be with others who shared the values of the kingdom, shared, shared the values of, of the Bible, shared the values of God. And they, many of them came to recenter those values, the values of the world, the values of those that don't trust in God, and the values of the kingdom of God are very different. And sometimes we don't even think about that. Something we, Dan and I were talking a little bit after the, after the service, just the idea of humility in our culture, you know, it almost has, I'm exaggerating, almost has a negative connotation. Not for you, because you, that's a biblical value, but for the world out there. You know, you're supposed to, you know, sell yourself and have, have a, uh, a sense of who you are and make your way and have everybody watch you and, and so on and so forth. And a sense of, of humility, of walking into the world uh, without that, that center being you and, and allowing others to be the center of what you do and listening to them and, and so on, uh, it's, it's not a biblical value. I'm going to begin with a little summary of 120. Some of you may not have been here last week, so even though people say I don't use notes, I do use notes. <laughs> this quote, meditate on this quote. I wish I knew who said it. All I can find out is it's a wise man. So that's all I know. 
And I've looked and looked and looked, but I've read it more than one place. And it, it, it struck me. The first time I read it, I went, whoa. So listen, this it's short. Most people, you and, and in our culture, believe we are in the land of the living, headed towards the land of death. Right? I mean, that's kind of how we think about life. We're living and it's vibrant and great and we're headed to death and that's, that's the great enemy and we don't really want to talk about it and it, it's, it's the challenge that we all face in trying to think about facing death. But the truth is, this is biblical truth, I think. We are living in the land of the dead and dying. Think about that. Think about what Paul says about those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. So actually, biblically, we're living in the land of the death and dead and dying and heading towards the land of the living. I don't know about you, but that helps me understand a little bit about Paul saying, uh, for me to, to, to die is gain. That, that, that unusual statement that comes from him and you go, whoa, he's way ahead of me. You know, death is not something I want to think about. And at my age, it is something I do think about. But you don't want to think about it. And as you, when you're younger, you don't. But notice there's, there's, a, there's a value there that says we're living in the land of the living, and we're headed to the land of death. And we've all kind of bought into that. At least, I think that's a, a true statement for most of us. And yet, the biblical values turn that upside down. We're li living in the land of the dead. And we're trying to resurrect and revive some of them by the power of God's spirit. But th this culture, this place is dying, and we're headed on this pilgrimage together to the land of the living, to the land of God himself, to the city of Jerusalem, this incredible place where peace, the shalom of God will reign. And that idea of, of the, the Bible kind of turning your values upside down is something I think we all need to grab hold of. Biblical values turn things upside down. Now remember, we, 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 let's just read 120 quickly, just to, to remind you of, of what we went over last week. I call on the Lord in my distress, and He answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will He do to you, and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm a man of peace. When I speak, they are for war. And we talked about the fact that here's a guy, whoever's writing this, who has found himself living in the hinterlands, who knows for what reason, we speculated as to why, living not amongst believers, not amongst his community people, but living out there in the world, and finding that the world is deceitful and lies and it, it's difficult to live in. And, and not only that, there's this, this sort of hint at the end that it's pressing in on him as well. That some of the values of the world are becoming his values. That he doesn't even realize it. it it's something that happens over a period of time. He says, I sojourned in Meshech. I dwelt in Kedar. Woe is me because I dwelt too long in those tents. And in that dwelling time, he begins to absorb some of the cultural values. Now, it doesn't mean that all the cultural values that we have are bad. <laughs> some of them are very good. And some of them are, are things we need to absorb, but we always need to test them under the authority of Scripture. Are these values the values of the Scripture? 
One of the most striking things about you and me as human beings, I think, and, and think about this, is that we want to be noticed. The best illustration I have, <coughs> I used to walk in, a, in another park in another place in the country early in the morning, <coughs> sometimes later, but between 8 and 10, 7 and 10. And it was a great place to bring kids, young children, because it was a wonderful playground. And they would always be climbing up and down off of these, these uh, playground, this playground equipment, and moms and dads would be there. And invariably, as I watched, the kids would be saying, Daddy, watch me. I'm going to go off this big slide. And invariably, <coughs> mom and dad had their face in, in their phone. And I was thinking, notice how, how much the kids want to be noticed and how much the parent wants to be noticed by whatever is on social media. And I'm not criticizing because it's sometimes difficult to pay attention to every single thing a toddler does because it's not really all they great. I mean, I'm going to go down this big slide. Look, Daddy, I'm great. I'm thinking, really, no, but oh, yeah, that's right. But that, that desire to be noticed, and that doesn't end when you're a toddler. It continues. We want to be noticed. We want people to see us. We want people to recognize us. We want people to praise us. And I'm always haunted by Jesus saying in the, in the sermon, beware of, of, of when, when men speak well of you, when all men speak well of you. If I'm seeking the attention of men, then I need to be careful. That's not, not really a biblical value. A biblical value is to, is to have the attention of God as we walk through our lives and pay attention to him as we're walking through our lives. So you get this desire to be noticed. And a biblical value would be notice others and who they are. Something as simple, maybe it sounds too simple, but when I'm in a store and they have their little name tags on, I want to be sure I recognize the person who's, quote, checking me out is a human being. So I want to call them by name. And I want to thank them when I'm finished. Sharon, thanks for, for checking me out. I mean, you were great at that, by the way. Just something small to say, you're more important in this process than I am. And I want to recognize that. As, and those are, it's a simple thing to do. And if it becomes rote, it's not really real, but, but it's a way of noticing others. The other thing that concerns me in, in, in Psalm 120, as I, I think about it myself, is that the world does squeeze on you, doesn't it? If their values are not biblical values, they want their values to become yours. It used to be they just wanted them. Now they're going to say they must be. We're getting to the place where they're going to say our values must be yours or you don't get it. And that's a dangerous place to be. But we're getting there, and, and there's a lot of that going on already. And you can be canceled for a, a narrative that's not their narrative, whoever they are. And so the world squeezes you. And that's what Paul's trying to say in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your heart or your mind. Actually, he says mind. So that we're, we're, we're coming on our mini pilgrimage to church each week to recenter our values and to be with people who value the things the same way we do. 
And that means we all have to be aware of what are, what are the biblical values and we don't just simply bring in the world's values into the church. Because that will not be helpful to us as we go back out into the culture to live. And that deep desire to be relevant and be noticed is true of institutions as well. I hate to say that, but it is. And institutions drift. Schools drift, churches drift. You mentioned the, the separation of the PCA from the PCUSA. It had to happen. <laughs> I mean, those that were in, hung in and hung in and hung in and begged those in the PCUSA to, to reestablish kind of the fundamentals of the faith and it just wasn't going to happen. But this idea that the culture is squeezing in on us all the time, and if we're not careful, we don't recognize it. I don't think the guy in Psalm 20 re recognized it. It just happened slowly. And all of a sudden, he had lying tongues, or he had a sharp tongue, or he was saying things that he would not normally have said. And at some point, there's that epiphany moment where he says, I've got to get out of here. I've, I've kind of forgotten about the things of God. I, the, the, the biblical values, the godly values that I should have, I've forgotten about. I need to get out of here. And what I think happens then is that in, is he, he begins his pilgrimage. He's going to go to Jerusalem. And there he's going to focus on the things of God, recenter his life again, because he's going to get lost in the culture. We can do that. Lastly, 1 Samuel 8. Israel asks for a king. Right? And Samuel goes, Really? And it bothers him. The text says it bothers him. And they say, no, we want a king just like the nations around us. Give us a king so we can be like them. Okay. See how they want to be liked by the culture? They want the nations around them to think they're okay because they have a king like we do. And that was their motivation. And Samuel, if you read chapter 8, he actually says, he goes to God and God says, listen, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. But he says, give them a king, but tell them what a king is going to be like. And if you read the rest of it, it's like, whoa, this is interesting. The, the king is going to you know, take all your daughters and, and children and put them into service for the government. He's going to tax you a tenth of your land. And whoa, light goes out. Whoa, how did you do that? Magic. You guys are playing games with me here. And a tenth of your property. All these taxes come, and you're going to have to serve the king, and the king is going to demand certain things from you. He's going to conscript your sons for an army, for a standing army. Do you, you understand all this is going to happen? And they go, yep, and we still want a king. That's how powerful they wanted to be like the nations around them. And we need all, as Christians, to recognize how powerful the cultural influence is and how much, when, when Paul says, don't be conformed, he's, he's saying that's a real thing. And it's going to happen to you every single day that you live in this culture. And so Paul pushes that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you go ahead and, and read the rest of Romans 12, going back to Dan's sermon, all the biblical values. And if you read through those biblical values, here's how you ought to live, and I won't do that this morning, but if you read through 12, all the values that are not cultural values generally. They're flipping the culture. And he's talking about humility and counting others better than yourselves, the things that don't happen in, in, the, in the culture we live in. And those are, are biblical values. Those are God values that we need to ask the Spirit of God to work into our lives, not just so that we can care about each other. That's primary. 
care about the church, but secondarily so we can take those values out into the culture around us and live them out even if it means no one's going to notice us <laughs> other than they think we're weird. And that's a kind of central to this idea. So Psalm 120 is a psalm in which the writer is saying, at some point, your soul, your heart becomes uncomfortable with the direction of your life and what's important to you and what you value and the way the culture around you values things that, that, that don't seem to resonate. Now, this, this was a believer, I think, in 120, who had gone astray. And at that point, there's this epiphany, this kairos moment. God breaks in and says, you've got to get out of here. And he goes, I do have to get out of here. I've got to get on the pilgrimage to the city because there I'll recenter my values. There's where I'm going to remember again and, and be with people who know the values of the kingdom. And quite honestly, if there are a variety of reasons for you to come to church every Sunday. Don't buy into the lie of our culture which says, oh, I can, I'm kind of spiritual. I can just worship at home. No, 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 no. Come to church. Sit in church with the people of God who have the same values you do, who can say the same creed that you say, who can sing the same songs that you sing, and who can listen to great biblical preaching and then say, God, apply this to my life. So that first, I can love the people in the church more and better, but secondly, so that I can go out into a culture and, and be the oddball that you want me to be, and I don't mean that in a bad way, to be the, the countercultural figure that, that operates differently. Um, I don't follow athletics all, I shouldn't say that, I do follow baseball, but um, I'm always impressed, I'm, I'm always drawn to, and maybe because of my, my biblical values, of the athlete who undersells himself or herself. Often in the interview, it's me, 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 look at me, I'm great, I'm fantastic, take a picture of me, take a selfie with me. And then there, there are the athletes, men and women, who want to downplay that. And I think some of them are Christians, but I don't know if all of them are. And I'm always drawn to them. I'm always thinking, that's how it ought to be. You've been given gifts and you're using them well, you're a good steward of your gifts, that's great. But it doesn't mean you have to draw attention to yourself, it's not all about you. So. That's the beginning. There's got to be a Kairos moment in people's life. Conversion may be that moment. Kairos moment is, Kronos time is this time, day by day time. Kairos moment, and that's a, a Greek word for time, means God invading time. There's a moment in which God is there, and you know it. And that would happen at every believer's disability. When they come to Christ, that's a Kairos moment. God has to do that. How often do I pray, listen, Lord, I'd love to see this person come to Christ. If I could do it, I would do it. <laughs> but I can't. But would you do what I can't do because I need you? That, that person so much needs to know you and to know uh, the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's the first of these Psalms of Ascent. We move from there to an, uh, such an opposite psalm. It's like night and day. In 120, you've got chaos and lying and slander, and I'm for peace, but they're for war, and you've just got a mess. And in 121, it's like, whew, this is incredible. It's all about relationships and God loving you and caring for you and guarding you and being part of your life and watching over you and shepherding you. And you get this whole different picture of what is happening here as this guy gets back on the road to Jerusalem to go with the people of God. So let's, let's read Psalm uh, 121, 
and you'll see the difference. It's like dark and light. It's like day and night. Um, the, the, the chaos of the world is supplanted by this sense of peace and joy and protection. One of the most well-known psalms, uh, and I'm going to do something in a minute to talk about how, how people love this psalm. Um, I've got three psalms of sent memorized, and this is one of them because it resonates with my heart. But here it is. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade. It could mean shadow. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. And you finish that and you go, I'm glad I got out of 120. Uh, and I, I have this, you have this sense of God's presence. They're starting on their journey is the idea. And we'll talk about how this unfolds in terms of the traveler's uh, psalm. But it's, it's such a well-loved psalm. David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa, his parents did not want him to go. He was a doctor. And they tried to convince him not to go. And he had a, a dinner with his family, his parents and his in-laws and so on. And he, he asked them all to come. And he tried to address their questions about his going to Africa. Because they were afraid for his life and afraid for what might happen, as would be true of any missionary that was going out. And in the middle of that, that discussion, he said, I want to read you the psalm on which I want you to pray for me as I'm there. He read Psalm 121. And this idea that God goes with me and guards me and washes me and protects me. I don't go alone, I go with him. And then he said to the family, take this psalm and pray it for me while I'm in Africa. And we don't know if any of them did, but we know his mother-in-law did, because she writes in her memoir, uh, Mrs. Buffett was her name, that she would weekly pray the prayer, Psalm 121, for David Livingston as he was in Africa. And it meant so much to David Livingston because he felt like, listen, yeah, I'm getting on this ship and I'm going to a place I don't know, but I'm going with the great shepherd of my soul. And he's going to watch over and protect me. I'm going to try something I've, I've never tried before. And if it doesn't work, then technology is. <laughs> Felix Mendelssohn, the great uh, composer, has wrote a great oratorio called the Elijah Oratorio. And um, in that oratorio, there, it's, it's, there are a couple of choruses, chorus 28 and 29, that are about this song. And for me, I imagine, and this is crazy, and, and you need to close your ears, Beth, and not listen to this. But for me, I imagine, just kidding, I imagine the Levitical chorus in the Temple of Israel, because this song was sung at the Feast of, all the feasts, but the Feast of Booths, and there were 15 steps that went from the court of women to the court of men in the temple. And these 15 steps, the, the choir would, would, would be on it like a, like a choir loft. And they would, they would sing the 15 Psalms of Ascent as the, the festival began. And they would do them one at a time, starting with, with uh, 120 and going all the way to 134. So I imagine 
the music sounded something like this. Now, if this doesn't work, bear with me. If there's an ad that comes up, I'm going to be really upset. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. Uh, there is an ad. Okay. I can skip it. Lift my eyes. It's not going to go off for me. I'll figure this out. Okay, here we go. So you get a sense of this beautiful music that Felix Mendelssohn wrote. And there's another choral part, 29, uh, about God watching over and not slumbering and sleeping. But it's in the midst of this long oratorio, but you get this beautiful music. Someone asked me, do we know the music of the Psalms of Ascent? And I go, no, but this would work. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this would be great. Um, so I imagine being in the temple, the, the, the temple particularly later in Jesus' time, Herod had spent, in, our, in our, our mind, millions of dollars to improve the size of it and the, the beauty of it. You remember when the disciples were looking down at the temple building and they go, Jesus, look at those buildings. Those are amazing, aren't they? And he goes, yeah, they're going to be gone before this generation passes. And they kind of were shocked by that. But sitting there in the temple, the Feast of Booths, all the people of God there, all the people who value what I value and know that God exists and is the protector of my soul. And you're hearing these songs sung in the temple with acoustics, probably a lot like what we were hearing. And it, 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 it motivates me. It, it makes me say, gosh, you know, that, that's where I want to be. And that's what church ought to be for each of us. We're, we're making our mini pilgrimage right? Every Sunday. And just, let's be honest, just by doing that, you're countercultural. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people in your neighborhood that would never get up and come to an 8.30 service. And that's fine. That's what they want to do. But you're driving here on this kind of mini pilgrimage. Luckily, you don't have to walk and it's not wearisome and we're going to talk about Psalm 121. But they're coming and you're coming because you want to be with the people. And you really do, I say every time I come, Father, recenter my values. Because I'm deeply affected by family and friends and others who have certain expectations for me and have certain things that they want me to believe or not believe. And particularly at my age, when you, when you have a certain belief, it's very easy for them to say, it's the old generation, we don't believe that anymore. Even if they're Christian young people. And my response is always to say, well, you may or may not be right. I am old, that's, that's for sure. But um, you may or may not be right. I really haven't moved. The culture's moved. I have the same values I had 30 years ago, but the culture has moved. Now, are you asking me to move with the culture, or are you asking me to stand on, the biblical, on biblical truth? 
And we need to be aware of all of that. And so we're in, we, we move from that into Psalm 121. Um, there's so much that I need to say, but, but let's talk first about this first two, these first two verses. First of all, grammatically, the first two verses are first person. I lift up my eyes, my help comes, right? So they're in the first person. It's, it's someone speaking uh, their own voice. Three to eight are in the second person, you. And a lot of discussion. I mean, I know for a lot of people it doesn't interest you that, that there's that change there. But I think it's helpful to think about it. But there's a lot of discussion in commentaries and so on, which I don't pay a lot of attention to. But um, I have this sense that, that Psalm 121, and not everybody agrees, but I have this sense it could be antiphonal. And I mean by that, the first two verses are sung by the traveler. I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And the response comes from either the leader or the priest or the, the leader spiritually to say, let me tell you what that means when you say my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And he explicates that. And it almost is like a blessing. It's almost as if he's blessing their travel. And he's saying, these are the things that I, that I want for you as you travel to the, to the great city, to the big city of Jerusalem. And there is some resonance between this psalm and the ironic blessing in the book of Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And the word keep, without getting too technical, is the word shamar. Very, a word used a lot in the Old Testament. I don't think keep is the best translation. And here I am going to look at my notes. <laughs> um, if I can find them. Nope. Um, it's used in a variety of ways. It's even used in the book of Deuteronomy when they say, keep my commandments. What do, what do we think when we, when we read that? Obey my commandments, right? That's what we think. I'm not sure the word shamar, even except for tangentially, has that meaning, to obey. It just doesn't have that meaning. Now, tangentially, it might mean you need to do what I'm asking you to do, but it doesn't have this idea of be obedient to the law. The idea is to guard or to watch or to protect. Uh, some commentators to say, say to exercise great care over to watch over, to guard, to take heed of. So in other words, the, the, the book of Deuteronomy is saying these are very uh, absolutely central to who you are, these laws. Pay attention to them. Take heed of them. Protect them. Take care of them. Be sure that they're always uh, kept the way they are now. Don't let anybody change the laws of God. They're too important. Watch carefully and care for them. It's a word that's used in, in interesting places. This is the word shamar. Yes? Would it be like holding on to Could be. Part of that connotation is kind of holding on to. They're important enough that you want to have them uh, in front of you all the time. Notice the Jews would wear things on their, on their um, tassels on their clothes with the, with the commandments of God. They're, it's their way of taking heed of, being aware of, paying attention to. Uh, and that has a tangential meaning of, of doing what they say but I don't think that's the primary meaning. 
and, and that's really all I want to say. It, it, it ends up being in strange places. In the Garden of Eden, in chapter 2, verse 15, what does it say about Adam? Keep the garden. That's Shamar. <laughs> so you're to watch it, care for it, protect it, pay attention to it, um, steward it, if you want to say that. In Genesis 4, 9, when God says that, this is, I, I laugh, but it's not fun. When God says to, um, to Cain, your brother's blood is, is speaking from the ground. And what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? I can't think of anything more offensive to say to an angel of God or to God himself. Because God is the great keeper. God is the great shamar. He is the one who is our shepherd and guard and protector. And he's saying, in essence, he's saying, you're the keeper. I mean, I'm not. I'm not supposed to be worried about my brother. And, I mean, for me, if I was God, and this is why I'm not God, I would have atomized him at the at that point. Just, you're gone, you're done. But the, this, this kind of sharp, sarcastic response, uh, am I my brother's keeper? It appears uh, in the shepherding of sheep in Genesis 30, verse 31. Keep the sheep. Remember in Luke chapter Three, two or three, when, when the angels go out to the shepherds, and it says they're keeping their flock. That's the word shamor. In fact, probably the closest connotation, the best definition, I would say, is shepherd. To shepherd the, the law, to shepherd uh, people. That, so think of Peter when he says the great shepherd of the sheep, that, that really the traveler is being shepherded along the way by the great shepherd. Uh, it appears in other places, which are unusual places, but I won't go into those. But uh, you'll, you'll see keep, and I'm always kind of saying, uh, yeah, I get that, but it doesn't translate, Shamar doesn't translate great well into English. And you'll notice in, in my translation, and, and maybe we'll take a look at how many times it appears. It appears six times in this short uh, psalm, Psalm 121. But the NIV, and probably the ESV, doesn't translate keep every time. Um, <clears throat> Verse 3, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you, that's Shamar. Indeed, he who watches over Israel, verse 4, that's Shamar. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you, that's the word Shamar. Then, then in verse 7, the Lord will keep you, that's Shamar. Again, same word, they just translated it differently. And he will watch over your life, so you get it twice in verse 7. And then in verse 8, the Lord will watch over your coming and going. Those are all the same Hebrew word. Now, I'm not saying that Hebrew words can't be translated differently in different contexts. Obviously, that can happen. But by getting at this idea of watching, shepherding, being on guard, protecting, uh, almost the idea of, of, as it says in one of the other Psalms, we're the apple of God's eye. <laughs> He's always paying attention to us. Now, notice that. We said earlier that we all want to be noticed. As a Christian, God has his eye on you every single minute of every single day. And it's not a judgmental eye. You're the apple of his eye. And he wants to shepherd you. He wants to steward your life with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to teach you. And that, that image is what's so prevalent here as we go through this psalm. So let's go back to verse. So six times the word shamar, sometimes called the shepherding or the, the watchful psalm because of those six repetitions. The other thing is that the word Lord, Yahweh, is used five times. And Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's, it's the name of God that says, I love you, and I'm committed to you, and I promise to be faithful to each of you. 
and I will be even when you're unfaithful. That's that promise that, that has no bounds to it. I am with you. I'm committed to you. I put my mark on it. God is the covenant God in a relationship with you. So five times that appears. All the, the, all the time, times that God's name is used, it's the name of Yahweh. Verses 1 and 2. I lifted my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? You wouldn't think there's a lot of controversy about what hills are they looking at and why are they lifting their hills up and where are they anyway and on and on and on. And I, I, I get somewhat amused by that, but you have to kind of take a position. Some say the hills and mountains were dangerous. They were places where there were wild beasts and robbers and marauders and other things. And so they were looking to the hills and their travel through some of the mountains, and they were afraid. And they were going, well, who's going to help me on this long travel that I have to go through? Who's going to be by my side? And that may be true. Others say they're on their journey and they're, they're seeing the hills or they're imagining the hills being the hills of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits in the midst of, of the hills in, in kind of east-central uh, Israel. And their, their, their help is going to come from the God who is in Jerusalem, the place they're going. I like that because it's a positive image. It's, oh, we're almost there. The hills are there. Or I can imagine those being the hills of Jerusalem. That's where we're going. We're going to the great city of God. And that, that, that uh, motivation that comes from that desire to be in the city with the people of God. And that was their motivation. They wanted to be there, to be with those people. <laughs> <laughs> My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You'll no recognize the maker of heaven and earth as part of the Apostles' Creed. And that appears a number of different times in the Psalms of Ascent, and we won't go to those, but it's not the only time it appears. A couple of things about that. He's asking where my help comes from, and he's looking to Jerusalem, longing to be there. And you get two things that happen in verse 2. It says, my help comes from the Lord. And he, he, the sense is that personal God, that God who knows me and loves me. It's not some God out there that, that, that's, you know, I can't really know. It's the God who walks with me. It's the God who shepherds me. And so that personal sense here. And the second is that God has great power. You know, my help comes from the Lord. Which, which Lord are you talking about? The one who made heaven and earth. Oh, that one. He's pretty powerful. And his idea that God spoke the world into existence and the power that that has. And the interesting thing to me is that that statement, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, can only come out of the mouth of a believer. And for a lot of people in our culture, the second part, the maker of heaven and earth, they can't even say that. And they're denying that. And yet, I think of the, the people in Psalm 120. If they needed help, if they were in danger, if they had fear, if they were struggling, think of those in our culture that don't know anything about God, don't believe in God, mock God, think the people who believe in God are a little off. You've met these people, I assume. They, when they ask for help, they're asking in a universe that is absolutely silent. There is no help beyond your friend, or AI, or social media, or going on a vacation, or drinking, or whatever. I mean, whatever it is they do to deal with their fear, their universe is empty. 
They, they, we're told, and our kids are told this in, 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 in academia most places, there's no God out there. No, we can't talk about God in the classroom. We're just going to talk about the fact that, you know, some place in the ancient past, billions of years ago, the whole thing blew up and came together and we all became sophisticated cosmic dust. That's what they, that really what they're saying. They don't say that. But we're all simply sophisticated carbon, hydrogen, and whatever else they want to talk about. That's fine if they want to say that, but that's a very bleak view of the universe. There is no one there. Why are you living? I have no idea. What are you doing with your life? I have no idea. Trying to make a lot of money and have fun. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Okay. But the believer can say, my help comes from the Lord. Yahweh, not just the God out there who I'll never know, the God who knows me and has committed himself to me and later is going to incarnate himself and die for me. As a believer, you have the most intimate help you could have. Someone who knows you perfectly and is your helper and is your shamar. He's going to shepherd you and steward you. So he has this personal relationship, but the great thing is he also has the power to do what you need. <laughs> personal and power, maker of heaven and earth, the God who can do anything. He can speak and it'll happen. Now, I'm here to say to you, as you all know, he doesn't always work by just speaking miracles into our lives. That'd be nice. I mean, we think that would be nice, but maybe it wouldn't be. <clears throat> but he could do that. So he has the desire because he loves you and he has the power to do what he needs to do to protect you. There's something incredibly important about those first two chapters. The rest of it falls out almost like a blessing. And it's just interesting to see the things that are named. Verse, verse 3 and 4. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He will not let your foot slip. Obviously, they're traveling. They're going through the mountains. I mean, I've been in the mountains in Colorado at times. When my foot slipped, I was dead, right? I mean, that can be, it can be very dangerous. It can be something less than that. But it's, it's kind of a minute thing when you think about it. I mean, the one thing he focuses on is this kind of minutiae, your foot slipping, your ankle turning. Now, travel was hard. It was laborious. They traveled by foot, most of them. To travel on a donkey was slower because the donkeys sometimes just stop. You don't know how, whether they're going to keep going. They'll just stop and say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. So you've been, we've only gone two miles. Sorry, I'm done. So you don't travel on a donkey. You kind of pull them along. You don't, probably didn't have camels. So to go 80 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem would take four or five days. There's a big commitment of time and energy. I mean, think if, if three times a year you were, you were told to, to, to walk 80 miles so that you could be in Jerusalem for the, for the festivals. That would be a challenge. And so there was danger, but they pick out the, the, the slipping of the foot. And I take that to mean two things. One, this, this phrase, slipping of the foot, only appears three or four other times in the, in the Old Testament. And it usually has something to do with something other than physical damage. Just, slipping in other ways, maybe spiritually. Uh, and that, that seems to be the connotation, that we slip up in, that, in a spiritual sense. We wander, we, 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 we aren't keeping to the path, and that God's not going to let that happen. And I think the physical is there, but I think the spiritual is also a, a very real part of that. I, I think of 1 Kings 18. Um, it's, no, it's 2 Kings, I think, now, now that I think about it. It's Elisha, and maybe it's chapter 6. Um, if you remember the story, they're building a little place by the river for the, for the prophets, and a guy has an axe head that he's using to cut down the trees, and he's borrowed it, and he's whacking away at these trees, and he goes, 
it backwards and it goes flying off. The, uh, the iron part of it goes flying off. It goes into the river. And he is, he is desperate. I mean, iron was, was expensive and he had borrowed it and he felt terrible. And he came to Elisha and he said, I borrowed that axe head and the axe head went in the water. And Elisha said, don't worry about it. He went and got a stick and threw it in the water and the axe, the iron floated up to the top of the river and he picked the axe up and put it back. I'm going, whoa, that's, that's pretty amazing. But it's such a little thing, really, in the bigger picture. And I think the idea is that God cares about the details of your life. Every single thing that happens is important to him. It's not as if he says, well, that's, don't, I'm not worried about that. No, I'm worried about that. I think about that. I watch that. I'm, I'm aware of those things that are going on in your life. And I want to be of help. I don't, I'm not telling you he's going to raise iron accents from the bottom of the river. But he may do things that you can't imagine. And it may not be immediate. It may take time. Over time, he may, he will be able to, to help you see what's going on. But that, that, that sort of insignificant piece is interesting to me. But verses 5 and 6. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. So this idea that God is stewarding and walking and shepherding with you all the time, day and night. Uh, English grammar calls this a merism, where we, we say richer and poor in the, in the wedding vows. We say for richer and for poor. You take two kind of opposites and it includes everything in between. So day and night and everything in between, God is watching over you. He's walking with you. And notice the intimacy of the walk. You see it? I am your shade. Sometimes that's translated shadow. And shade was absolutely central in a desert. You know, you had to find some shade when you got hot and weary. And it could be a rock or a, a broom tree every once in a while. But God says, no, I'm your protector, and I'm where? At your right hand. I'm right there. I'm not far off somewhere. I'm not looking with binoculars from the hills. I'm right there with you, walking with you as you go through this arduous journey. And the journey, remember, it's not just the journey from this guy making the journey to Jerusalem in the ancient world, the journey is our life. So all these things apply to our life. I'm right next to you. I'm walking with you. Are you going through a tough time? God's walking right there with you, through, through it with you. The last couple of verses almost to me seem like a blessing. Coming, maybe all of it's a blessing. The Lord will keep you from all harm. Some say, some say evil. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. <coughs> Notice the extension of his stewardship and shepherding. It's not just now, but forever. You're experiencing it now. You're getting a taste of it now as, as a Christian who's come to Christ. It will continue for the rest of your life. And when you die and cross the Jordan, he's going to welcome you into the holy city. And that care and protection and interest in you will continue forever. It's eternal love and care and protection. And the God who says that knows all of us more intimately than we know ourselves. He knows everything about you, good and bad. And yet, you get this sense of he has power, he has interest, he watches you day and night, he's concerned even about the minute details of your life, and he is going to be watching you forever and ever, and is walking beside you. Now lastly, I've got three minutes, four minutes. Don't take this psalm as a psalm that says nothing bad will ever happen to you. Some people do. They say, well, gosh, he promised me that I'll never have my foot slip, and He's going to watch me every minute of the day. He's going to take care of me. That doesn't match with the rest of Scripture. 
That's why I think the idea of it being a blessing, may these things be what you experience as you go through your journey. But if not, be like the people in Daniel. What did they say? You put us in the furnace, and God will save us. If he doesn't, we're still not going to do what you asked us to do. <laughs> and that idea that suffering and struggle comes, and often we're confused by it, often we can get angry about it, but ultimately this psalm recenters us to say, it's not as if God doesn't know, and either he's going to work it for good, or ultimately he will, you're going to have to persevere through it. And I think of the, of the statement that Joseph made at the end of Genesis to his brothers. What did he say? You meant it for harm. God meant it for good. And this idea that the superintending of God, the shepherding of God is working, as it says in Romans 8, all things work together. It doesn't say all things are good. All things work together for the good. So that God is weaving the good for each of us as we go through the difficulties and struggles of our life. And this psalm is reassuring you that you have a shepherd of your soul who is watching you. You don't feel noticed? He notices you. You don't feel like anybody cares? He cares about you. You don't feel like that anybody gives you any credit? He does. And he's constantly at your side, walking through life with you. And that's why this psalm has meant so much to Christians over time. Lastly, ultimately, the hill we look to is Calvary. We look to the cross. It's the ultimate hill we look to. And everything that's said about Yahweh here in 121 is to be said about Jesus in spades. I mean, he is the one who's going to walk with you. Even more so because he said, I went to the cross for one reason, because I loved each of you. The joy in my heart, I loved each of you enough to suffer for you. Now come to me and follow me, because I love you and I know who you are, and I want to shepherd you through your life. And if you get off the track, find yourself saying, myself at Wegman someday, i got to get back to church. Hope it doesn't ever happen. But i got to recenter my values. And when the, the scriptures tell us things, because of the grace that he showed us, and I, I want to emphasize that, do what he asks you to do. It'll free you. And when he says, don't do that, he's not saying because he's saying, I don't want you to do that. That's, that's something that he's saying, not doing that will be joy and helpful to you. He is the great shepherd of your soul, and that's what this psalm is all about. Don't ever forget it. Come back to it when you're going through those tough times, and God will minister to your heart. He has to mind. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you that I can lean on you, and that you are shepherding me, and that shepherding includes pushing me forward at times, and taking me away from wandering back to the centering of my values and biblical values. Might this church be known as a church where people come to recenter their values and then go out and live the gospel uh, in the community around them. We pray these things in Christ's name.